Hello, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Camillo Ortiz to discuss effective parenting techniques. Camillo is a licensed clinical psychologist and tenured psychology professor at Long Island University with over 20 years of clinical experience. His clinical practice focuses on cognitive behavioral therapy, and he specializes in research on parenting and disruptive behavior in children. Camillo has also appeared in numerous media outlets, including MSNBC, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Psychology Today. Camillo shared some eye-opening insights about discipline and parenting in general throughout our conversation. The overall theme that I took away from our talk is the value in avoiding over-parenting. One way this manifests is the tendency for parents to over-rely on the strategy of verbal commands to mold behavior. Statements like, don't do this or stop doing that, are such commonplace that it's very easy to ignore that having to repeat these phrases over and over again can dilute their meaning or lead to emotional escalation and anger. Overparenting can also occur through attempts to protect children from minor discomforts and dangers, not allowing children to experience physical and emotional consequences through constant hovering, repeated reminders to be careful, or through excess accommodations can foster anxiety and a mindset that someone else is responsible for their safety and happiness. This is a can't-miss episode for parents, teachers, or anyone who spends time with children on a regular basis. Enjoy. Okay, I'm here today with Dr. Camilo Ortiz. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. Great. Uh, so uh, we're going to talk today about parenting. And uh, there's lots of different subtopics under parenting. Uh, so why don't we start by talking about, uh, in your view, what are the causes of disruptive behavior? I'm sure it is, it is definitely top three uh, interests for, for parents, how to uh, discipline uh, children. Uh, but specifically, what do you think are the causes, the, the environment that, that can lead to disruptive behavior? Well, you know, it's actually the number one referral question for, for children in, in clinical psychology is, is disruptive behavior. And the way that we define that is non-compliance, defiance, aggressiveness. And we generally think of four main causes for disruptive behavior. And it's funny how things have changed from when I started about 20 years ago, we used to think that parenting was probably 90% of the cause. And that number has certainly dropped over time as we understand the power of genetics and temperament. So, so let's start with those. And so the, the first one is the, is the temperament of the child. And we can think of that really simply from super easy to super difficult on a sort of 10 point scale. Uh, and, and what does that mean exactly? Where, where uh, it, it means kids who are 
uh, easily frustrated, who are quick to anger, who are rigid in their thinking, who um, get stuck with uh, wanting something and not being able to change their minds when that happens. And, and parents notice that really early on especially some of the physical manifestations of that. And so parents have told me that in utero, they knew they were in trouble because they had a, (laughs) you know, super active child. So that's number one. Number two are the genetics or temperament of the parent and specifically the interaction between those two. And that plays a, a big role. So, you know, when I'm treating ADHD in the child, for example, um, it's a fairly common uh, occurrence for me to assess ADHD in, in the parents because we often see inattentiveness and emotion dysregulation, which is an underappreciated aspect of ADHD in the parents. And so yeah, I, I teach this to my graduate students, but if you have, let's say you're, I'm sure we've all been in the grocery store where we've had a parent yelling at their kid and you might look at that and say, well, look, the parent is modeling aggression to the child, and so the child is learning that. But an equally plausible explanation is that they have shared genes, and right. it's manifesting as frustration that you can't get a candy bar in the two-year-old, and screaming at the two-year-old for, for being out of line in the parent. So right. genetics are very important. Uh, not that we can change them, but it's important to understand the effect. Number three are, is uh, short-term stressors on a family, and We've all experienced that with COVID lately, mm-hmm. but it can be, you know, anything. It can even be a positive thing. So, you know, like a, uh, a new job or a promotion can actually add some stress that can affect child behavior. But the one that we really focus on still, even though parenting is not as uh, all-encompassing as, as we thought, is the parent-child relationship. And there's a a particular interaction that happens that we call the coercive parent-child cycle. And when I describe this to parents who have kids with disruptive behavior, 100% of them tell me that this exactly describes what is happening. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe I can go into it a little bit later. I don't want to talk for 20 minutes to start off, but basically it's just a bit, it's a Uh, a well-understood pattern of how parent and child reinforce the worst behavior in the other person. And so it leads to escalation, either within an interaction or actually over time, so that parents and kids start at an angry place when they didn't used to. And we can certainly talk more about so, that. So yeah. So what does just uh, for this this kind of coercive relationship? What's a what would be a good hypo? Was that what would be a good hypothetical? Was that a supermarket situation uh, similar? Or I'll give you, you another about? one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a uh, parent tells their child, uh, uh, "Please clean your room. It's it's a mess," and the child doesn't want to do that. And so uh, the child pretends not to hear it. And the child, the parent sort of walks by the room again and notices that still just as messy. Uh, and then they say, uh, I asked you to clean your room. So it's a little louder, a little, little annoyed. Right. Uh, child says, all right, I'll, I'll do it later. Uh, I'm busy. Then the parent gets a little more upset, repeats the command. Right. And we see this three to seven times as kind of a mean 
kind of an average number of repeated commands, but I certainly have had examples of 20 times. You tell yourself right. 20 times. And so each time you're a little louder, a little uh, um, more irritated, it's possible that at some point in those 20 repetitions of the command, when you reach a certain voice volume, your child has learned that that's when you really mean it, when you say, it, and then they do it. So that, that's possible. Right. But yeah. it's also possible they don't do it after the 20th time. And so right. then parents go into threats. If you don't clean it up, I'm taking your phone away for the day. And maybe that's the level that is required for the child to, to clean up. Yeah. But maybe that doesn't work. And so at that <laughs> point, you have two options as a parent. You either really step up the aggression and, you know, it could be spanking or, you know, I once had a, I was on an airplane and I had a parent tell a child that they were going to turn the airplane around <laughs> if, they, if she didn't calm down. Or you acquiesce, which is, you know what, live like a pig. I don't care. And right. you walk away. So everybody, everybody sort of can relate to that example. Now, when we go back through it and we look at what behavior is being reinforced in each person, escalating for the parent is being reinforced because every time you escalate, the chance of compliance actually goes up. Um, and for right. the child, non-compliance is being reinforced if even one out of 20 times the parent gives up. And so this is a like, perfect storm of getting the worst behavior in each person. Right. And I have so many thoughts on that. The uh, it, yeah, it, it reminds me of how sort of uh, I've been calling it the relentless nature of children, which is that they will they are willing to, to kind of play this game uh, to get uh, to for some outcome that they're they're, they're trying to mm -hmm. obtain. And um, it, it 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 makes me a little bit sad that that kids are willing to kind of uh, go through this process and that they're, they, they kind of have these behaviors that are designed to kind of, to, to not their parents. Like, uh, you know, I think of like fake crying. I think all parents are yeah, aware yeah. that their kids will fake cry. Uh, cause you know, as soon as you, you know, leave the room or something, they stop crying and stuff like that. So they have all these manipulative behaviors kind of built in. Um, so, Let's talk about uh, the that you, you mentioned that the parents escalating. Uh, in general, would you say that it's helpful or hurtful to uh, display anger during this process, right? Because um, I mean, to, to your point in that description of the coercive environment, my fear is that uh, that the that the kids can um, attribute their consequences to their parents' emotions, like. As long as I can, as long as I, as mommy's still not angry yet, I, I can still take, you know, uh, I still have a few more laps to go. That's right. That's so, right. Um, so what, uh, how do we, how, how do parents think about emotion? Uh, how do they use emotion effectively to avoid the cycle? Well, therein lies the trap, which is that when parents use emotion, they typically get a bump in short-term compliance. And the best example of that is if you threaten to assault your child by spanking them, you probably will get a good amount of compliance. But that's not the way most parents want to relate to their children. They don't right. want to have to be yelling and threatening. Right. And so this is really at the root of everything we do in, in what we call parent training, which is to get out of these short-term traps and into a longer-term healthy relationship with the child 
which actually is harder in some ways at the beginning, because if you don't rely on the tool of escalating, you have to rely on other tools that don't actually work as well right away. And it's more of playing the long game. And generally emotion is, is not helpful for a, for a parent staying calm and matter of fact. And uh, I use the term nonchalance a lot with parents. You set up the situation that you want with your kids and you act as if you don't even care which decision they make, but they both are going to work because you've set them up. And so an example of that is what we call the when-then command, which is one of my favorite parenting interventions. And it's simply... Could you say that one more time? The when-then command, or or the if-then, if-then, or when-then command. And so this is one of those situations where parents have the most leverage. So you're sitting around, your, your kid comes up to you and says, can, can you drive me to uh, my friend's house? So now they need you for something. And so here you get to use that leverage. And so what it would look like would be, I'd be happy to drive you. I just can't do it until you're, you've cleaned your room. And so now the child has a choice. They can say, yeah, you know, it's, it's not worth it. Uh, I, I don't really want to go that bad. And that's okay. There's no skin off your back. Their room was already dirty and it still is. But probably they, if you pick the right when then command, they'll say, fine. And they'll go and do the thing. And you don't have to repeat yourself. You just sit around waiting till the room is clean and then you take them. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a great way to get out of these angry interactions with the child. You just set up a when then command and then you wait. And, and the beauty of it is you don't have to even repeat the command. You just wait until they do their part and then you do your part. And my own kids uh, personally know that when they ask me for something, there's going to be a when then command, but they actually uh, probably appreciate that that means less yelling about other things. Right. Um, and, and so uh, I, I know my, uh, my partner and, and her children, I've had some experience interacting uh, with them. And um, uh, what, we talk uh, quite a bit about uh, discipline. And um, one of the things that at least comes up a lot is um, they need to feel consequences for disruptive behavior. Because to your point, there's like a, when you get into that coercive cycle, it's a, there's a lot of words being exchanged but kids are, we've established, they're very savvy at, at sort of manipulating conversations. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about, uh, about these techniques to, uh, that, that actually work for molding behavior? Well, can you say more what you mean by feeling a confidence? Does that mean getting upset? Well, uh, the, um, I think it's the difference between a threat and an actual consequence, right? Because I think the default, because parents want to have this very like close, healthy conversation with their children when they're misbehaving, you know, you, please don't do this. I've asked you nicely, like, like they're talking to an adult mm-hmm. because, you know, if an adult bothers you or does something wrong, you have a conversation with them. But it, it always seemed to me that kids need to f- have an actual tangible consequence at some point yeah so uh, the, the the problem is that if you 
uh, are consequence driven when there's non-compliance, you're going to be applying a lot of consequences to kids. So, you know, when we, when we study preschoolers, um, your average preschooler can be non-compliant with about 20 to 40% of parental commands. And uh, I've brought lots of parents into my parenting lab and I have a one-way mirror and, and I have a little uh, like baseball clicker for like balls and strikes. And I just count commands. And I've counted a hundred commands in, in 15 minutes. And so we know that the, the average kid, not even a non-compliant kid is gonna not listen to 40 of those commands. Now a parent is in a bit of a bind because if they're going to apply a consequence every time there's non-compliance, now there's 40 potential consequences in right. 15 minutes. Right, so you, one get of the, caught, you get caught up, right? Yeah, that's, I, I totally see that, yeah. So, you know, maybe the most important skill that we teach is this idea of grading the importance of your commands before you make them. And I have parents imagine this pyramid of commands where we have a, a few very important ones at the top that you should absolutely make. Don't drink that bleach. Don't run into the street right. without looking. A few in the middle. And there's probably a whole bunch of commands that are not necessary. And so before we even talk about consequences for noncompliance, we start reducing commands, pulling those away so that we don't even get into a discipline situation as much. And the best types of commands to get rid of are ones where there's a natural consequence, where if you do nothing as a parent, I'm sort of a proponent of this idea of lazy parenting, that parents work way too hard. So what are some easy ways to get them to do less work that are actually effective? Mm -hmm. If you don't make a command where there's a natural consequence, then there'll be that natural consequence and you don't have to do anything. So if you're constantly telling your kid to wear a coat because it's cold, that's a perfect example of a command to delete. You don't have to do that. They'll be cold. And as long as they don't get frostbite, they will learn that that was a bad idea. And that's actually better learning than doing it because your parent is telling you to do it a million times. So right. that's the first step. To, it's not technically discipline, but it's an integral part of discipline is to get rid of unnecessary commands. Well, and, and, and let's say it yeah. reminds me of these, uh, you know, I was reading an article that was uh, looking at uh, the parents' tendency to say, be careful uh, oh, and yeah. how it can kind of, uh, it, it's very easy for that, including myself, for that to take over conversations when they're playing outside. And, you know, to your point, it made me think it's like, uh, you know, I don't want, you know, I don't want them to get injured, but a, a little bit of pain, you know, scraped knee, et cetera, et cetera. Um, even though it, it might be uncomfortable to accept that as a consequence, it, it might be the, the only, the only solution uh, because you, you'll you'll be out of breath saying be careful. Well, let me let me tell you a homework assignment I gave to a dad uh, fairly recently. You might think this is crazy, but the homework assignment was to let his kid run into the side of a jungle gym and and bang her head because he was following her as she played and he wanted to sit and read his newspaper. And so he she never got hurt because he was always there to stop, put his hand in front of her head but she was not learning how to handle danger. And she hit her head and she cried and then she didn't hit her head again and he could relax and read his newspaper. One of my favorite parenting books is actually called 50 Dangerous Things You Should Let Your Kid Do. 
And um, we can talk a lot about the value of mild danger, but that's the way that kids learn to manage dangers with experience with it. Uh, let's talk about uh, some other uh, techniques that are pretty common for uh, molding behavior. So things like um, uh, things like rewards. Uh, do you have any tips for how parents can uh, uh, use in incentives without kind of uh, uh, avoiding uh, uh, avoiding the issue that uh, a lot of psychologists are aware of, which is uh, uh, you have to be careful using incentives for things that kids like. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of classic studies in psychology show that if you incentivize kids to read by giving them some sort of reward, they uh, lose their taste for reading because they associate reading with the award. Uh, so uh, what are some ways that parents can use uh, rewards effectively? There are two situations where rewards are are quite useful. And those are for new behaviors or difficult behaviors. And so, um, you know, the classic example is potty training where a child uh, is scared to poop in a potty or hasn't done it yet and needs that extra push. Um, what I, parents make a lot of mistakes with the, with the use of rewards. And one of them is that they use it for something the child's already doing. And, and as you described, that actually can reduce motivation to do that thing. Another mistake is really on the opposite end of the spectrum where they demand many instances of a behavior in order to get a reward. So if you do X all week long, you'll get a reward at the end of the week. And that's not how psychologists understand how new behavior is formed. You, you basically have to reinforce a behavior every time it happens when it's new. And then you start using what we call a variable ratio of reinforcement, which is how slot machines work, where you sort of randomly reinforce them uh, every few times. And that keeps a behavior going, but it doesn't, that's not the way to get a behavior uh, going in the beginning, which you need to reinforce every single time it happens. So that's one change I make, which is instead of waiting a week to get the reward every single time it happens, and they can be tiny little rewards or they can be uh, sort of intermediate rewards. One of my favorite ways to, to do reward is, is by uh, a connect the dots figures. Let's say of like cat. And so every time a child does a behavior, they get to connect the dot, two dots on this picture of a cat. And so they don't get the reward until the cat is all filled in, but they're happy that they're connecting dots as they're getting closer. So you don't actually have to give a child something every time they do it. There are these intermediate steps like poker chips or check marks or, or that sort of thing. Great. Yeah, that's, that, that's definitely helpful. Uh, I've, yeah, of course, there's also, uh, it's even better to use the reward if they don't expect it, right? These surprise rewards, right? Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of work showing that, that, you know, if you don't see the reward coming and you immediately reward the behavior, that's also better for reinforcement than if they know the reward is coming. Surprise um, is a yeah. super useful uh, concept in clinical psychology and we use it in, in many ways. And, and that's, that's a great one. We activate that amygdala, that emotion center by being really surprised about something, it is powerful, it sticks. Now, you, uh, you have some experience uh, researching timeout. 
I'm curious as to um, how effective timeouts are and, and if, if, if uh, you know, what types of situations would demand um, those types of uh, behavioral interventions. I have such a love-hate relationship with timeout because it is super effective if you do it correctly and it is almost impossible to do it correctly. So, <laughs> um, I, so I wrote an article in the Washington Post of, about this issue. Um, people can look that up. Um, but it's just uh, anyone who's tried it knows that the child can get out of a timeout fairly easily by refusing to go or leaving in the middle of the timeout, timeout or tantruming and making life really difficult for the parent. So um, basically you need to sort of imagine a decision tree where you anticipate every last thing the child could do in the context of a timeout. And before you even do it, know exactly what you're gonna do. So you don't have to think about this. And, and you know, I did some research that um, now that I think about it, it was pretty mean, but one of the things that I did was I would stress out parents uh, and then I would have them try to do some pretty basic parenting stuff and they just couldn't do it and they were stressed out. So mm -hmm. I had them in this room and I had all these really cool toys and I said, your kid's not allowed to touch any of this stuff. And obviously it was the first thing the kid would do is go touch this stuff. And I had this television blaring music and every once in a while, a purple triangle would appear on the television. And I told the parent, it's very important that you count exactly how many purple triangles. I didn't care how many purple triangles. Mm -hmm. But so I, I was distracting them. Right. And then I would have them try to do pretty simple parenting stuff and they couldn't do it. Um, and so you really have to pressure test these techniques. And so when parents work with me, they will try to put me in timeout. And I will do everything I can to make life miserable for them. But if they can do it successfully with me, then they're going to be able to with their child. And, and the main one is what to do when the child says, I'm not going. You know, so you, you hit your brother, you have to go to timeout for five minutes. And by the way, longer timeouts are not more effective than shorter timeouts. And the child says, no, I'm not going. Most parents are pretty stumped at that point. Um, and so we have a, a bunch of different techniques that we teach parents. I, I can go into them if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because uh, parents often operate with with suboptimal attentional resources, right? J they're humans. Yeah. Just you know, it's it's hard enough to with our phones and our television. Well, we're going to talk about uh, attention a little bit after this, but yeah, wh why don't you go into a little bit about effective timeout usage? So there there are three approaches really for timeout noncompliance, and this is a perfect example of you might need to lose a few battles to win the war. So the first one is you increase the time. So yeah, let's say it's a three minute timeout for a three-year-old and they say, I'm not going. You say, if you don't go, it'll be four minutes. And they say, I don't care. I'm not going to go. Okay. It's four minutes. If you don't go, it'll be five. And you go up to some level, say seven or 10 minutes. And if they still say, I don't care. You can't make me. I'm not going. Then you have a backup consequence. And so it could be something, uh, 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 there's, there's no iPad. And they say, I don't care. I don't even want my iPad. Uh, I'm going to go play outside. And that's okay. You just, again, let them experience that choice. They're going to tell you it doesn't matter. Don't believe them. It does. If you pick something reasonable like iPad. And then they don't get it that night. And then the next time, so they don't have to go to timeout. So they actually win a little bit in that battle, but they don't get the iPad that night. And the next time it happens, 
you do the same thing. And again, they might say, I don't care, I'll watch TV instead. I don't even like the iPad, but then you do it again. And maybe the third time they decide, well, you know, it's pretty silly. I can sit here for three minutes and I get my iPad all night. So maybe I'll do that. Usually it takes about three times and then they make the right choice. But this is very frustrating for parents because they're losing two of these battles before they actually win. Uh, but that's okay. So that's one approach. The other simpler one is you don't raise the time. You just go right to the backup consequence. And the third one is what we call a deferred timeout, which is basically you as a parent are on strike until they serve their timeout. So I can't help you with anything until you sit for three minutes. Then the kid says, I don't care. I don't need anything. And they walk away. But pretty soon, uh, mom, I'm hungry. Can you make me a snack? I'd love to. I just can't do it until you sit for three minutes. Okay, I don't want a snack. And then half an hour later, mm -hmm. I want to go to my friend's house. Love to take you. I just can't do it until you sit for three minutes. Eventually, the pressure will build and they will give in. And then you won't have to do all this song and dance the next time you do it. Yeah, that's, uh, you're, all these techniques definitely underscore the value of patience because it's... It well, that's the one advantage is our frontal lobes are better than theirs. And so yeah. we can wait them out. Right. Hopefully. Um, so, yeah, let's let's transition and talk about attention. Um, it, it seems as though um, issues like uh, ADHD are on the rise, at least in the U.S., perhaps globally. Um, uh, aside from just, the, you know, the clinical aspects, attention in general is, is kind of uh, crumbling. I mean, you see, we could talk about devices. We could talk about uh, change in, in shifting schedules and, and always having, you know, things to do on your calendar, um, specifically in, in children, uh, how do you see, what, uh, what do you, what are the causes of, of uh, attention deficits? Well, our best understanding uh, of ADHD is that it is a brain disorder and it is genetic. Um, and uh, there, there are a few misconceptions about ADHD. It is really mostly thought of as a deficit of motivation, not of attention. And what that means is, you know, parents will, will every parent with a kid with ADHD will say, I don't understand. He can play attention. He can pay attention to a video game for four straight mm -hmm. hours. So it can't mean that they can't pay attention. It is really a lack of motivation for repetitive or boring tasks. And uh, some controversy about, you know, where that comes from, but the best science does suggest that there are genetics involved. And there's some interesting evolutionary theory about how this might've survived. How, how could it have been adaptive over time? Um, well, it, it, it you, also makes me yeah. worry. Yeah, because it's interesting that, that you put it in that context that it, it is motivational because I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it seems as though uh, if, if you look at the baseline activities that children have at their disposal in 2022, they're far more stimulating and motivating. They're yeah. the, the, the types, the, you know, the types of uh, like the iPad and, and phones and stuff like that is is fundamentally different from the toys and objects that that uh, our generations played with when when we were children. So it seems as though the window is shrinking for what kids are 
motivated to do. Would you agree with that? I would. And it makes me pessimistic about the future because uh, the trend is for things that are even more stimulating over time. And that's, you have thousands of software engineers in Silicon Valley figuring out how to further engage children in highly stimulating activities that uh, use all of the behavioral theories we know. Um, so I, I uh, you know, a, a lot of mental health issues can be thought of as a mismatch between our current environment and our genetics. And this is a, a perfect example of that. We are not equipped, our brains and, and the brains of children are not equipped to deal with what society is today. And it will only be an extreme version of that going forward. Yeah, I, I'm sure I could, we could do a whole episode on attention, even a whole episode on ADHD. Uh, but uh, why don't you, uh, why don't we summarize this by talking about some strategies that parents could implement to either avoid losing control of their attention or improving an attention that is already uh, somewhat limited? There are remarkably few evidence-based strategies for increasing uh, attention in children. And mostly the focus is on improving behavior, assuming that they're gonna have some trouble with attention, but stopping that from turning into disruptive behavior. And it's really all the skills that we've talked about, these core skills that we call behavioral parent training are effective for kids who have ADHD or have behavioral issues for other reasons. But it is mostly about making effective commands. And there are certainly some changes to the way parents make commands of kids with ADHD that we can talk about. One of the things that you cannot do with kids with ADHD is make multiple commands at once. They will not remember them, they will not do them. So you have to make, so instead of, I want you to go upstairs and brush your teeth and put on your pajamas and feed the dog and get in bed, you have to break them into pieces and then reinforce each one as they happen. You can't do drive-by commands as you're walking by. You have to get down at, at their level and even have them repeat the command back to you. Um, and, and also what we talked about before is you really have to get rid of unnecessary or low priority commands because each one of those is an opportunity for escalation. And the more commands you make, the more you are tuned out as a parent. Um, and then to have firm, clear discipline when commands are, are not followed and timeout or other consequences are the main uh, forms of discipline that we use. So I, I would say, a sister issue to attention uh, seems to be anxiety, right? It's not, the, it's not fundamentally the same thing, but it, uh, my gut tells me that, that they have similar cause impetus. There's a sim something related between uh, how attention operates and anxiety. Um, now, I would imagine that anxiety, much like attention and a little bit like, like disruptive behavior, does have a big genetic component. Yes. Um, but uh, since we know that we don't really have, we can't really change our genes at this point, you know, fingers crossed, maybe some, maybe we'll be able to start changing, turning on and off certain genes at some point. Um, but 
uh, of in terms of what parents have in terms of the control that parents have over their child's environment suppose that they a, a parent has a child who struggles with anxiety um, or let's just extend that to even just fears okay maybe it's not the same thing but a lot of kids you know they're they see a scary movie and they're they're afraid to go in their room uh, maybe they're afraid to ride a bike um, how should parents uh, address anxiety in their children? So the traditional cognitive behavioral model has focused on a few things. Um, and so I'll say what those are and then I'll say some of the research that I'm doing, which is a little bit different. Um, one of them is by spotting what we call parental accommodations. And these are either preemptive attempts by parents to shield children from anxiety, or once a child is anxious, taking that feeling away by stepping in and taking care of whatever the child is anxious about. And that ends up actually making things worse because then the child has less practice with tolerating anxiety. So we work with parents on identifying all the ways that they accommodate anxiety and then in a manageable way, dropping those behaviors. So it can be um, my child needs uh, their chicken nuggets to be a certain shade of brown, or they say that they're gross and they can't eat them. And so I make sure that they're that color when I cook them. It could be, um, uh, I had, I had a, a dad who uh, his child was afraid of wind and, and thought that people would be swept up. Uh, and so his dad would push him in a stroller, a covered stroller, so he would not feel the wind. And so that's another short-term, long-term. Definitely made the child less upset, but did not give the child any experience with tolerating the discomfort of being in wind. So we have to drop these behaviors. The second thing is invalidation, which happens a lot. Parents will say, oh, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. And that doesn't there's a, there has never been a situation in the history of humanity where someone has told an anxious person, just relax, don't worry about it, where it actually has worked. That doesn't do anything other than make the person not heard. And so we work with parents on reflecting instead of invalidating. So a child says, uh, I'm scared of the dark, instead of saying, don't worry about the dark, it's no big deal. Just reflecting back, oh, I can see that the, the dark is worrying you. And then pausing and letting the child tolerate that feeling before you jump in with, but, and these are all the reasons you shouldn't be worried about the dark. And then the third thing that we do is uh, work on parental modeling of how they handle anxiety. And many parents inadvertently reinforce avoidance in the way that they handle anxiety. And so we teach them to talk out loud about their anxiety. So they might say in earshot of the child, now I have this job interview and I'm feeling kind of nervous about it. I think I'm going to go prepare a little more so that I'm, I'm more ready for the questions I might be asked. Just out loud so the child kind of hears, well, this is what you do when you feel anxiety. You don't need to avoid it, but there are ways that you can tolerate it or handle it. That's sort of the traditional CBT model. Now, I want to go back to the chicken nugget example because I get the impression that parents listening might spaz over that because I I'll go to bat for them because I, I think how I th the issue is how do you toe the line 
between care and love and which can manifest as you know making making your child eggs when they don't like the spaghetti uh that's something that's something that my grandmother used to do for me um i i fully understand you know this the importance of having kids uh deal with uncomfortable moments but how what, what do you say to parents that are struggling to determine how they balance uh being loving and caring and allowing their children to be uncomfortable yeah it's it's really gets at this issue of the the match between parent and child so if you have a child who is flexible in their thinking and doesn't uh isn't demanding or entitled in their behavior then go ahead and go crazy with accommodations it's not going to hurt them but when you have kids who are anxious and rigid in the way that they view the world and intolerant of discomfort, distress, disappointment, then it is um, very important to give them lots of opportunities to handle those emotions. And so I would err on the side of less accommodation, even if that means that you are demonstrating love in this context, less than you would like to. You can certainly make that up in lots of other ways, but you're, you're doing a child a disservice if they don't have practice with those three Ds, disappointment, discomfort, uh, distress. They, they need those things in order to be functioning adults. So it is a dilemma and there's no, there's yeah. no great rule to decide when to do it. Yeah. The, uh, the book I bring up probably more than any other on this show is The Coddling of the American Mind uh, uh, by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. Uh, definitely worth checking out. This isn't the first time I've mentioned it. Um, and of course, one of one of those points uh, in, in there is uh, what do, you, it, it's the old adage of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, and how if, if we don't honor that, uh, it can lead to long-term consequences yeah and i really recommend that your listeners go to letgrow.org which is uh, talked about in this book an organization headed by lenora scanese and uh this is my, my latest research is the power of independence to reduce anxiety so having kids do more things where they on their own with no parent to save them uh, from distress and discomfort and disappointment. Uh, I think the more practice they get with independence, the less anxious they will be. So that's my theory, and we are testing it. Uh, let's pivot a little bit. Um, I'm curious <clears throat> as to your thoughts on what messages parents can communicate to their children to foster a healthy social identity. And what I mean by that is uh, parents are often put into positions where they're able to uh, sort of give kids thoughts about the social world. So uh, we want our kids to be socially desirable. So like, you know, lying is bad. You don't want uh, you won't make friends if if you're lying all the time. Uh, maybe you're encouraging your child to be kind. You want them to be kind more often. On the other hand, 
Um, we also don't want our kids to care too much about what others think, right? We don't want them to be too sensitive to criticism. And to me, it seems like it's, the, it's two sides of the same coin and it's a tricky balance. Um, what, what types of messages do you think are, are healthy for parents to communicate to their kids when it comes to navigating social challenges? Well, it's so easy to, to just say, you know, you, you do you and, and don't worry what anybody else thinks, but that, that's, that's not probably very reasonable for, for most kids. So one of the most fundamental truths of cognitive behavioral therapy is what we call the ABC model, which is uh, A is what we call an activating event, which is really anything that happens to you, and C are the consequences of those activating events. So um, someone cuts you off on the road, that's an activating event. You honk at them and, and chase them down the road, that's a consequence. And most people view the world as A's and C's. But psychologists know something very important, which is that there's something in between the A and the C, and that's the, the B for beliefs. And our beliefs about the activating event are actually far more important than the activating event itself. So this can be applied to any situation, including social ones. Um, and so what that means is to be curious about your child's interpretation of things that happen to them and to listen and to reflect those interpretations and to using some basic Socratic questioning, ask them whether there might be another way to think about the situation. So for example, in social anxiety, people tend to overestimate how much other people are paying attention to them. Very well-known um, finding. And so, you know, if a child is afraid to uh, give a presentation in class because they think everyone will think that they sound stupid, most parents, again, will invalidate that. Oh, that's not going to happen or try to get the child out of doing the presentation. That would be an accommodation. So instead, tell me more about what you're afraid might happen. Is there another way to think about that? And so this Socratic hypothesis driven as opposed to fact uh, our brains sort of conflate beliefs with facts. And if we can teach children that their thoughts are possibilities, and there are certainly other possibilities, then I think that's a more uh, reasonable approach than just telling them not to care about what other people think. But to tell, tell them instead to be more attuned to what their brain is telling them and to be skeptical about those things because our brains tend to lead us in the wrong direction many times. And there are all kinds of unhelpful thinking styles that psychologists talk about. Um, yeah, it seems to fall, so under I, the, um, yeah. fall under that umbrella of, of sort of reflecting, emo practicing good habits of reflecting and validating emotions, uh, having, yeah. having a um, sort of that mirror uh, role where they can say something and you're not you're not, you know, overwhelming them with information. You're si mm -hmm. sitting with them, which is a lot what what, what therapists do. It it's, uh, um, amazes me to this day the power of simply saying back to someone, either in therapy or as a parent or a friend, just what they said to you. I've had the situation many times. Someone will tell me something. Uh, I'm having a really hard time with my boyfriend, and I'll say, uh, lately it's been tough going with your boyfriend and they'll say, wow, you're such a good listener. You really, you really get me. And I'm just saying the same words back to them. And, and I 
I can't emphasize enough for parents and, and for anybody, the power of doing that instead of dumping solutions on people. That is not usually why people want to talk about things. They don't want solutions. They want to be heard so they don't feel alone. And then after you do that, and then you pause, and I have parents count to five Mississippi in their heads before they give any advice, then the person might open up to the possibility of advice. But if you do that first, you're going to lose them. Right. So I, I asked uh, some listeners to uh, to submit their their concerns. Uh, we only have time for one, but I, I did want to wrap up uh, addressing one of those requests, and that is... Uh, your thoughts on sleep? Uh, I think a lot bedtime can be uh, a stressful time for a lot of parents. I'm sure. Um, uh, what are what are some things that parents should be aware of uh, for bedtime? So not not sleep in general for adults. You know, like good sleep hygiene. This is when kids don't go to bed. Yeah, yeah. How, what are yeah he- healthy sleep habits? I think was the was the uh, the ask. Yeah. Okay. Well, my very favorite intervention for what we call bedtime resistance or bedtime non-compliance, which is broadly speaking, when your kids will not just stay in the room and you are tired and you want to watch, you know, TV with your spouse is, is what we call the bedtime pass. And these are little, little laminated passes you can make with your kid. They don't have to be laminated but basically you give them a certain number of bedtime passes per day or per week. And it's usually based on how many times they typically are leaving the room. So if they typically leave the room five times, you might give them four bedtime passes a night. And they can use a pass for any reason they want for a short trip outside the room. And then they get to use unused passes. They get to trade in unused passes for some reward. And you very often will find that they will come out less because now they have control over the situation. You're not going to yell at them as much because you told them they can come out for any reason. They don't have to lie. They come out and they use their unused passes. And then what you do every week is you reduce the number of passes a little bit. And if you do this enough within a month or two, they very often are not leaving the room at all. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I, and I, I like, uh, I, I like this this idea. It's a common theme in uh, more modern parenting advice, which is to involve the children yeah. in the uh, whether it's the regulatory process or the discipline process. That it, it seems I know for a fact that you know that if if I would have told my my grandmother, you know, you, you have, you know, parents are supposed to involve their children in this process, they would laugh me out of the room. Uh, but the, is that well, involved doesn't mean you don't get veto power, you always get veto power. But it's often quite a right to say, what do you think is a good solution to this problem that we keep having? Sometimes kids will come up with really good ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, I, we have time for one more. So I, I wanted, I got a, an ask about, and again, I hate to end on a sad note, but, um, uh, we just, when, when this is being recorded, it's the week of, uh, an, a, another shooting mass shooting tragedy in Texas, uh, in Uvalde. Um, but, uh, before this tragedy even happened, I had, a I had someone mention that they were interested in, uh, a approaches to helping their children through grief. Yeah. 
I see this ha on, on Twitter a lot uh, after, after some traumatic experience, like how to talk to your children about X. And I have mixed feelings about it because I don't think most people need an expert to tell them how to talk to their children. Uh, most people know pretty much what to do, which is to listen, to validate. And that's really the advice that we would give them. So my main advice is to follow your own parenting instincts and you don't need someone to tell you what to do. But if I'm gonna give a specific technique, it really would be to not try to take away their feelings by minimizing or invalidating and whatever it is they're telling you, pause, and reflect and don't give advice until they ask for it. And that usually will get the job done. Yeah. I, I know I, that's not, that's not like a super uh, expert answer, but it's really what I think. Yeah. Uh, it, it just reminds me of a sentiment that is expressed by comedian Adam Carolla when he says, uh, the fact that you're asking means it's not an issue. The fact that you are concerned about your child's emotional state and you want to help them, chances are you just kind of go with your instincts because you, you already care. The issue is for people that don't care or, or mm, don't I even see. want, they don't even want to know how to help their, their children through grief. Right? Yeah. If you're asking, you're probably quite a validating, caring parent anyway, and you're doing a good <laughs> job. So you don't need to change anything. Well, thank you so much uh, for being on. Uh, I, hopefully some parents, uh, hopefully they had some glass shattering moments and some things that they can go try. Um, uh, it was, it was definitely enlightening for me. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, being on, uh, Camilla Ortiz. It was, it was a lot of fun to talk to you, Ryan, and I hope we can do it again sometime. on Camillo, visit his website at drcamilloortiz.com or follow him on Twitter at drcamilloortiz. That's at drcamilloortiz. Be sure to follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcasts or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me at why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs>